Well, good morning. And um, this morning we're going to hear about God's determined and stubborn love for us. Jesus told a story to help us understand that, to see the depths of his love and to show how we can respond to God's love. The parable of the lost son is an incredible short story. There's not a wasted word in it. It's very compact, but still there's so much in there for us to learn. And as Grace said, um, the context of this story really starts in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 1. And I was supposed on my notes find what page number that was in the Pew Bibles, but I forgot to do that. But you can find it in the Pew Bibles and in, the, in Luke 15 or on your phones. Luke 15, 1 starts this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And so Jesus is going to tell actually a series of three parables. And we're going to start into the first. The first, as you've heard, is the parable of the lost sheep. And it's interesting, uh, parable, Jesus asks the crowd and says, Simply, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Just a a regular person like you, what would you do? And he said, wouldn't they leave the 99 in the open country and go search for the lost sheep? And they would keep searching until they found it. And when they would find it, they would joyfully carry it back. And then they would be so joyful that they would ask their friends and neighbors to come join them and say, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. In verse 7... Jesus says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, the emphasis of that statement is not on how low value the 99 are. It's just the opposite is, yeah, the 99 righteous people who don't repent are of great value, but still there is more rejoicing in heaven when one person realizes they are distant from God, turns, and comes back. The next story is referred to as the parable of the lost coin. And again, Jesus starts out a very simple statement and says, suppose a woman, just a woman in this crowd, someone who, just a regular person, has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. What will she do? And he says that she will light a lamp, sweep the entire house, and search carefully, keep searching until she finds it. And when she finds it, she's going to call her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And Jesus says in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As I was preparing for this, uh, to talk about the pair of the lost son, I read this, it struck me maybe for the first time in this verse 10, I was thinking, well, who's rejoicing here? If, if it's rejoicing in the presence of the angels, who's rejoicing? And I think the conclusion in my mind is that it's God's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. He is just like these people saying, come rejoice with me. So when we go then to the parable of the lost son, it's a longer story than these. I said it's not a, very, it's not a greatly long story. It's still a short story. There's really three main characters there. There's going to be a father, and there's going to be two sons. The father represents God, and then the two sons 
are us. And so we should listen carefully to this story. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there began to be a famine in that entire country, and he found himself in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's higher servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a celebration, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The story starts with a very unusual event. So what should happen is when a father or, or the, the, the male died, his property would be divided among his sons, the eldest getting a double portion. In this case, only having two sons, the older would get two-thirds, the younger would get one-third. It was not common, but it was not unheard of for a father to divide his property before his death, but he would retain the income from the property. So he would give over management, in some ways, in a sense, kind of like retire a bit, but he would retain the profit. It's extraordinary for a son to come to his father and ask for his inheritance, to just have the inheritance before the father's death, and very extraordinarily that the father would give this. In essence, what this son is saying to his father, I really have no use for you. What I want is the property. Or maybe even more directly, it would be just as convenient for me if you were dead, and so I would have the property. But the father gives it anyway. 
After that, in case there was any doubt in the father's mind what the son's relationship was to him, he gathers everything he has, sells the property, turns it into cash, and moves far away to a very distant country. And the emphasis there is on distant. It just probably didn't even matter where, just he was leaving and he was going. And so there's no doubt into what his attitude was toward his father. This in some, and after that, we see the son's life rapidly deteriorate. He goes from security and love and wealth to eventually being alone and forgotten and starving and feeding pigs, which was a very shameful thing for a Jewish person to do. But that is one aspect of sin. One of the things that helps us to recognize sin in ourselves and others is how poorly people sin, how poorly we sin. That is to say, how much we sin to our own detriment, to our own self-destruction. But sin is always that. It may not start that way. It may seem like as we're leaving God and turning our backs and going to the distant country, it may seem, hey, we're actually doing pretty well at this thing. But eventually, it is self-destructive. In verse 17, there's a major change or turning point in the story. And Jesus describes it as, when he came to his senses. That's an interesting phrase to me, when he came to his senses. If we could inject ourselves in this story just for a moment, if we had been a citizen of that country, maybe a neighbor where these fields were, and we looked and we one day asked him about his story. Why are you feeding pigs? You look pretty bad here. What's what's going on? And he told us his story. How long would it take us to figure out the solution? You have one resource. It's your father. Go back. But another aspect of sin is how self-deceptive it is. Again, as we leave God, we think we are in control. We think, hey, this is great. I'm doing well. But sin always leads to self-deceptive, to being self-deceptive. And so we can find ourselves feeding pigs, starving, and not able to figure out which way to go until God enlightens us. And in this case, he comes to his senses and realizes what needs to be done. And so he decides that he will return to his father, and he's going to make this confession. And it's an incredible confession if we look at it. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, I'm going to pause here just a moment in the story and ask a question, and that is, what did the son do to require this confession? I mean, what, sin did he, what sin did he do? If we're being a little bit, I'm playing a little bit uh, advocate for the, the son, as he's, as he's leaving and he's found himself feeding pigs, he asked his father for money and his father gave it to him. He didn't commit a crime, did he? He's not wanted for a crime in his country of origin or the country he's now. Yes, there's this issue of wild living we'll deal with here, but he lost the money. That's a shame for him, but he's the one suffering, isn't it? One could make a case, well, what is the big deal? What, what is the confession of sin? And I think we need to understand a bit more if we're going to understand the second part of the story about what is the true problem here. We talked a little bit about this um, earlier in that, again, the father represents God in this story, and he has rejected his father. He's made it clear, I have, nothing, I have no need for you. There's nothing in my life that I really want with you. I'm going to what you have for me, and I'm going to leave and go away. So he's rejected his father, totally. But he's also rejected everyone else there. As a son in that estate, he would have had relationships, and he's turned his back on his own brother and anyone who was there, even the hired servants who he would have had relationship with. 
as I was reading the story again, it's interesting to me, somewhere in my past, I, I always wanted to inject friends into this story. I don't know if I saw a, a you know, a, someone had taken the story and, and furthered it, but in this distant country, I always wanted to think, yeah, he had friends, and when he ran out of money, his friends abandoned him. But in the parable, there's no friends. And I think it's to draw us to the attention that he really just cared for himself. He totally just valued himself because there are no friends for, to abandon him once he has no money. It's just simply his life is totally about him. Jesus was asked by an expert in the law at one time, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, let's see if I have this on. Yes, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Pastor Sim had said, I believe it was last week, that when, this, when it says the law and the prophets, it's basically saying the entire Old Testament. So Jesus is saying everything that God commanded, all these stories, all the history, everything, the wisdom, all hangs on these two commandments. You know, recently I was hanging a mirror in our, we have a half bath downstairs, and Kim's parents had given us, we went to replace the mirror because it was kind of falling apart, and they gave us a mirror they were wanting to, to, to change, they wanted a smaller mirror, and this was a pretty good sized mirror, and it was a very quality mirror, very heavy. And so we took it, we got to put a white frame around it at the framing shop, and it, it was a very heavy frame. And so when it came home, it had two little hooks on the back. And I thought, oh goodness, when I hang this up, I better get the the, the little hooks right, because if I don't, it's going to be off. And so those two hooks, and all the weight is going into those areas, so I need to get this right. We need to think this same way also. You'll notice about these two greatest commandments, they are relational. They are relational to God, and they are relational to each other. As we think about programs at church, as we think about doctrines, theology, how we think about salvation. This tells us that everything really has a basis in being relational. In the story, you know, I think when I was younger, I would have thought more about the wild living. Yes, the wild living was obviously bad, but it's a downstream effect. When we reject God and we reject the people around us, when we refuse to follow the two greatest commandments, the wild living or whatever it is, whether hatred or sin or selfishness or greed, those are all downstream effects. They are important. But really, everything Jesus says in the Bible has to do with these two relations. There's a, a story I want to tell that helps illustrate this. Uh, a person that uh, has passed away now, but Kim and I had the opportunity to know a, a theologian, and uh, he passed president a long time of, of Asbury College, man named Dennis Kinlaw, and this kind of helps illustrate what I'm trying to say here. Uh, he wrote out a testimony, his, how he came to faith, and one of the episodes in his life that helped lead him along there happened when he was a boy. I forget exactly what age. Uh, he was a boy going to elementary school. It was during the Great Depression, so his family didn't have much money, but he, he um, was jealous of some of the kids who did have money and could, after school, buy candy, and so he went and stole money from his mother's purse, went, hid it, bought candy, and thought very greatly of this, that he had uh, solved his problem. 
His mother, of course, knew what had happened and confronted him, and he denied it, that no, this is not what happened. And she said, he, he then relates the story. She, he says, then she turned to me with her eyes brimming a bit and said, but what hurts me most, honey, is not that you would deceive me, but that you today have grieved the heart of the one who loves you most, Jesus. It was years later that I remembered this incident and realized that she had said nothing about doing wrong by breaking the moral law or making God angry. The primary problem here was not legal, but personal. I had grieved the very person whom I should recognize as the best of all possible friends, the one from whom I had received the most and to whom I owed the most. You know, it's... um, And Dennis Kinlaw is not saying, because I've read other things he's written, yet, yes, this idea, I mean, one of the great analogies or relationships that the Bible says from Old Testament to New Testament is, yes, God is king, God is judge. He does give us laws. We We do, when we sin, break laws. He's not saying that. He says, but there's other things God says also, that God is father and we are children. And if we just focus on the legal aspect or just think of sin simply as, well, I broke a rule, then I think we're going to come to some wrong conclusions. We could rewrite the parable of the lost son and simply say, well, he realized he had done wrong, and so he got up and moved to another country where he got a better job, and he earned money, and he wrote his father and said, I did wrong, and here, I'm sending money back to pay for what I did for for, for, uh, getting rid of the property, uh, squandering the property, and I'm no longer wild living. I'm living a, a good moral life. And that still is distant. And I think it's going to lead us something that we'll see with the second son. But keep that in mind. So the prodigal son, or the lost son, he, he makes this decision, and he gets up and he goes to his father, and he discovers on the way home something that we discover about God when we turn back, that it seems like we're seeking God, but really... God has been seeking us the entire time. And going back to the first two parables, the emphasis there is God continually, determinedly, stubbornly keeps seeking us, and he finds us. And so he, he has a chance here, but, but before he even has a chance to talk, his father hugs him and kisses him, and he tries to get out his confession, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It used to bother me when I would read this, like, why didn't Jesus let him get the other part in? That's kind of this beautiful contrition of, I'm not even worthy to be called your, uh, make me like one of your servants, excuse me. But I think Jesus interrupts this for, for a reason, because we see the father quickly do something that you would do for a son. He brings the robe, he brings the a ring, a signet ring that is, emphasizes you are my son. You put shoes on his feet, which you do for a son, and he says, we're going to celebrate And we need to think here just a couple minutes here about repentance and God's forgiveness for us. When he came back, I think the reason that Jesus cuts off and doesn't say about make me like one of your hired servants is because the the father in the story doesn't have a help wanted sign by the road as he's watching for his son. It doesn't say help wanted. I need another servant. He's got servants. He doesn't need that. What did he lose? He lost his son. When we go away from God, God has lost a daughter or a son, and the only thing he's going to accept back is a daughter or son. He's not really looking for one of the hired servants. He already has that. And so when we come back to God, 
we always, the emphasis is on what God does for us. You know, I think one advantage the, this lost son would have had feeding the pigs um, over many people is there was no illusion of what he was going to do to earn his salvation. No illusion of what he was going to do. You know, what was he going to sacrifice? He owned nothing. He, he could say, well, I'll do something religious. Maybe I'll fast. He, he's on a permanent fast. He, he can't, there's nothing that he can do to earn, to have the illusion of earning his way back to God's love. Sometimes as we live in, you know, central Indiana, we can have the illusion, well, I have resources or money, and I, I, I'm going to earn my way, or I'm going to work for my way back to God. I'm going to, maybe we understand, yes, it's God's grace, but yeah, when I come back, then I'm still going to have to earn. It's, it's all the work I'm going to put into this. Fortunately for this lost son feeding pigs, he only had two things that he could do. And fortunately, those are the only two things that are necessary. He confessed what was true. It was true. He sinned against heaven and against his father, and he repented. And the, the word repentance literally means to turn from where you're heading and go the other direction. In this case, in this story, he literally does. He went to the distant country, and now he turns back, and he's heading back to his father. He rejected relationship with his father, and now he's going back saying, that's what I want and his father totally accepts him. We need to then also examine, though, what happens with this second son, because that's obviously an important part of the story. And what kind of interests me as I was reading this again was that the second son is physically present. He's right next to his father, but he's as distant as the younger son who went to the distant country. And, and if we look at this, you might say, well, how is he distant? It's his father pleads with him to come back, and he says, no, I will not. He, he doesn't, he, he's not truly interested in what his father desires. And he's, he's made it clear that he's rejected his brother. Now, we can have some sympathy. I'm sure he was irritated at his brother, but he made it clear, this son of yours, he's no longer my brother. And so just like the younger son, who was more obvious, has rejected the two greatest commandments. This brother has too. And we need to take a little bit look at why he's done that so we can avoid that. One of the things he says here, which is very interesting, he says, um, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And he, then he says that, says that when this son of yours who's come, you know, it's interesting in the context of this story, if you remember, we go back, what did the father do? He not just, he divided the property and gave it to him. This older son, when the father responds and says, everything I have is yours, it is. If he's working, he's working for himself. It's, it's, his father has literally given him everything, yet he's still resentful. And if we look at the Christian life as being a disciple is simply works, I think we can end up that same way, that God has given us everything, but we resent it. Now, in this story, going back to the start, one of the groups that this represents is obviously the Pharisees. And Jesus, in other parts, was very critical of the Pharisees. In fact, I remember at one point, Jesus said, you know, you're very careful about the laws. You'll even divide your spices so you can tie the tenth of the, these tiny amount of spices you have. 
but you've forgotten the more important things, love and mercy and justice. And so again, he points them back to, this is not just a legal thing, we're talking about a relational thing. But I think in the church, what can be, it's easy to read the story and say, okay, yeah, but I'm not a Pharisee, you know, I'm not like one of those people. But I think in the church we need to examine it because I, I'll just use myself as an example. I really kind of date back 1986 as a very important year in the life, really for Kim and I, when I started to take on quite a bit of kind of work or responsibility. Uh, became involved in inner city missions. It was time when the next year we would be going to Kenya for the first time for two months. And from that time, we've been involved in all types of activities, work, or things uh, that, that have been church-related. But as I look back and think, not all of what I have done has been relational. Not all of it has been to fulfill those two commandments, to love God and love my neighbor as myself. There's been times when I have wanted to revert back to my pre-Christian time, and it's like, okay, I, I kind of need some good works here to, to, to work for, for my salvation. There's been times it's probably just been pressured into it by <laughs> well-meaning people. It's, okay, I'm going to do it to make some people happy or, uh, you know, th- those type of things. And, and as I look at life, when I do things for a reason other than what God's will is, being in love relationship with him, or, and because of that, to love my neighbor as myself, it does lead to resentment. It leads to distance. It, it, it leads to, why am I doing this and these other people are a bunch of slackers? Or, why am I doing this? And, and it just leads to resentment. And, and in the church, we can start replacing God's love and grace for just another job. It is spirituality, or I should say work described, work, work uh, camouflaged as following God. And it's hard to do because as I look at my own life, sometimes it is hard to know what is my motivations and what's good and, and right. So I'm not suggesting that there's just some easy, easy solution to this. But I would remind us that, um, oh, I didn't put this on the slide, that Jesus gave a very strong warning in Revelation to the church at Ephesus. And, you know, in Revelations, there's seven churches, and uh, Jesus gives messages. The Ephesus is the first church. And in Revelation chapter 2, two ver- starting with verse 2, it says to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I think that tells us how important it is that we always put Jesus first. Many of you know, and some of you have been following, there's been this... uh, event at Asbury College, now it's Asbury University, um, that now hundreds or thousands of people have gone there. And it started out, we, we have some connections with Asbury or with, uh, with World Gospel Mission that still has people there. And so we've gotten some interesting reports, but it started just as a, a regular Wednesday chapel for the students, and it just kept going. And one of the things that people who've been there who've we've read have have made the same comment is that it's interesting is that there's nothing particularly special about this except for 
the focus is on Jesus and just his love and presence and understanding that. Uh, on Facebook was posted, so I feel free to share this. Uh, one of the pastors at Trinity wrote, wrote this as after being down there, and I think it's just an encouragement to us. They were talking on the drive back that it was a wonderful service and, and, and just being there was wonderful. So he asked his children, what made the service so good? And one of his sons replied, it was only about Jesus. Well, Dad, it feels like most churches are about Jesus and something else. Usually it's good stuff, but you know, Jesus and a political thing or Jesus and a social justice thing, you know, Jesus and something else. Today we had church and it was just about Jesus. You know, as, as, as I share this, the, my goal in my heart is, is that we can understand God's incredible love and his search, and his determination to find us when we are lost. But his love for us after we come back, and just the security we have in him of how much he does love us, and that as we do serve in church, and we do the work that is necessary to be in relationship with God and each other, but we won't put that work to destroy what God intends for us to be this loving relationship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these parables that you told. We thank you for your determined love for us, that you sought and you found us, and that you rejoice over us greatly. We thank you and just ask that you give us wisdom to follow you well and to not be trapped into just a works and a distant relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.